it is good to be back with you tonight. Let me pick up with where we left off this morning. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, Yavesh chatzir navel tzitz, udavar eloheinu yakum leolam. So the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And we believe that truth, we proclaim that truth, we are excited about that truth. But sometimes we have some questions about these truths, about God's word and how it came to us. A couple weeks ago, we explored the question from a historical perspective. How was it that God's word got from Moses, writing down God's word for the first time at the time of the Exodus? How did it get from there through history and all the various developments that we learned about to the English translations that we use on Sunday mornings and in our private worship. That was the question we we explored a couple weeks ago, and tonight our question is a little bit different. Tonight the question is, do we have the actual words written by the prophets and apostles? Do we have the actual words that they wrote so that we can be confident that We don't have to worry so much about what's actually here in the text. We can be concerned more about what it actually says. And my hope is tonight, after this time together, that your confidence in our answer to that question will rise. But before we can do that, we need to look at a couple um, things here. We need to clarify something right from the beginning. Now, sometimes it's claimed, especially on the internet, that there's so many different Bibles out there. How can you believe in the Bible? There's so many of them. I mean, they just they all they say all these contradictory things. Well, when people are not being so skeptical and they're saying that in a more honest fashion, oftentimes they're referring to translation differences. Now, what do I mean by a translation difference? Let me give you an example here. Salvation is not a reward for good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Ephesians 2:9 from the New Living Translation. Or how about this from the ESV, Ephesians 2.9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Those look pretty different, don't they? But do they say the same thing? Essentially, yeah, they're saying the same thing. But the way that these two committees have chosen to translate it from Greek into English, they made different choices on how they were going to do that. You can see, for example, the NLT chose to make it a complete sentence here. So they borrowed words from the verse before to make a complete sentence, whereas in the ESV, we just have a partial sentence. Okay, so we're going to explore some of those questions. We're going to save those to the end. So I'm going to do my best to keep moving so that we can get to talking about what's the difference with all these translations that we have today. But the question we have to explore first is that of the textual difference. Now let's look at Ephesians 6.1 here to see what I mean about this. In the Christian Standard Bible or ESV or for most, it says something like this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Now, you need to be aware that in the 4th century, there is a very well-known and venerable Greek manuscript that reads this way. I translated it for you. Children, obey your parents because this is right. In the Greek manuscript, we don't have what? In the Lord. 
I want you to believe me, so I'm just going to go ahead and show it to you, okay? You can see most of these images online today. We're very open with the history and the transmission of the text of the Bible, especially with the New Testament documents. And so this is actually Codex Vaticanus, and that's, this is where that reading comes from. And you can see right here in the blue, this is the part of the sentence where we should find, obey your parents in the Lord, if it was to be there. But it's not. Okay. In modern Greek New Testaments, down in the footnotes, you'll see something like this. Okay, I don't expect you to understand all this. I'm just trying to give you a picture of what's available for those that do study these things. Here's the phrase that we're looking for. En kurio, in the Lord, in Greek. And you can see all those letters and squiggles and numbers afterwards. These are indicating all the different Greek manuscripts that have that reading. Okay? You can also see that a few of them happen to omit that phrase, that letter B there stands for Codex Vaticanus, and if it was to be there, it would be right there where that arrow is pointing. So, this is what I mean by a textual difference, and this is what we're going to explore first tonight as we look at the question of do we have the actual words written by the prophets and apostles. This process of determining what the, uh, the prophets and apostles originally wrote is called textual criticism. It sounds like a negative thing, but it, it's actually a very positive process. And the goal of textual criticism is to reproduce the original biblical text from this vast wealth of manuscript information. Vast wealth of manuscript information. Let me tell you that today we have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, not all of them are complete. Some of them are partial. We have over 5,800 copied from throughout history. When I use the word manuscript tonight, I want you to think a handwritten document. So all of this is pre-computer, pre-printing press. It has to be a handwritten copy. So when I use the word manuscript, that's what we're talking about. And we have a vast wealth. Compared to any other work of antiquity... It's, it's, it's not even fun to compare. Most classicists are working with three or four copies of their works in Latin and Greek, and we have over 5,800 copies of the New Testament. The goal, though, is from that wealth of information to reproduce what the original reading was, and that's what we're going to explore some more here. And to help us do that, I'm going to need a few volunteers. A few volunteers. Now... You need to be able to read and write clearly to volunteer for this exercise. You do not have to come on stage. You do not have to say anything at all. But you do need to be able to write in a good hand because you are going to be a scribe of the Gospel of Marcus tonight. So who wants to help us demonstrate uh, what this process is and... um, and then later on, we're going to examine your work. So again, um, I, I won't put names on any of the copies that we look at, but I need six volunteers. Go ahead and just come on and sit down here in the front row if you'd like to volunteer. And uh, this uh, lecture has been recorded at, other, uh, at another church. So if you're having trouble following along, you can go back and listen to it elsewhere. I need six volunteers down here in the front 
All right. So, split these up here. All right, I need one more. I'm going to start calling on names. Okay. All right, now I need three to go over there and three to go over there. Split into two teams, even. All right. This should be fun. This should be fun. Okay, what I'm giving is a copy of the freshly produced, inspired Gospel of Marcus here. Okay? And we're going to see how well they do. I am giving them a first-generation manuscript. I wrote it myself. Okay? So I know what it says. I'm going to give this to them, and you'll have five minutes to copy it. Now, I need the second and third copyists to scoot away. I don't want you looking over and reading it. You can't, because the second and third copyists will not get to see this one. It will be returned to me, and the copy will be passed to the next scribe. Does that make sense? Any questions, scribes? No? Okay. All right, this group over here. Go ahead and hand it down. Okay. Now you got a copy down here. Use your best handwriting, okay? I will start the timer. Actually, you know what? I'll go ahead and start the timer right now. Sorry, group over here. You're not getting the full time, but you know what? It was not easy for the early copyists, actually. Much of the copying was done under duress and persecution, and, well, sometimes you just don't have a clipboard. You got a pen there? Do you want to use my pen? pen. You want to use your pen? You sure it's going to work? Okay, I hope so. No, you can't use that notebook. Go and put that down. All right, thank you. All right, go ahead. I'll tell you when your time is up. Again, best handwriting. You're copying a very important document for the next generation to be able to read. All right, the rest of us, let's keep going. And again, they'll have a chance to catch up on this if they want to. Okay, so we're beginning our copying exercise. This is what we're going to cover real quickly here. We're going to go over Old Testament text criticism and New Testament. What are some of the differences? We're going to talk about what is a variant versus what is an error. And then we're going to look at some examples together. Okay, so that's what we're going to move through here. As we look at Old Testament text criticism, it's different from... What's with New Testament? Remember, I said there's over 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament in Greek and Latin and other, uh, well, that's just Greek. Then you have the Latin and other translations on, and you have more than that. With the Old Testament, we don't have that many. Actually, we're dealing with very few manuscripts, and yet we're also dealing with very reliable ones. The main way that Old Testament text criticism takes place Again, this process of figuring out what did the prophets, Moses and the prophets, originally write for us, is to compare the manuscripts that we have among different languages. Now, there are some problems that are still challenging to scholars, but largely today, people look to the Masoretic text, which was written down in approximately 930 A.D., and it was written by a group called the Masoretes. If you were here last time, we talked about them a little bit. You might remember the, the scribes, the Masoretes. If you want to see a, a brief copy of the Aleppo Codex, what they wrote, you can go look at our banner out in the foyer, and, and I have part of it on there for you. But largely, scholars are confirming that 
these guys did a fantastic job in passing it down. See, the Masoretes functioned from about 500 to about 1000 AD, and their main role was they understood themselves as passing on the Old Testament reading from Ezra and the scribes all the way up to their day. And they helped to innovate the way they wrote letters. Now what you see here is not the Masoretic text because it doesn't have any of those dots and squiggles like I showed you last time. This is a copy from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's also in Hebrew, and yet it was before they wrote the vowels in. It's only consonantal. It was also written by a group out in the Judean desert about a few hundred years before the time of Jesus. Okay? There's about 600 manuscripts that go back to the 2nd century BC. But oftentimes these are fragmentary. We only have bits and pieces of them. So the main way the Dead Sea Scrolls help us in determining what the original said is by confirming that the Masoretic text, which we have the entirety of, confirming that it got it right. So what we have of these really, really old Dead Sea Scrolls from the time of Jesus confirms that the Masoretes for a thousand years were passing it on in good form, in good form. But that's not the only thing we have to work with. We also have the Septuagint. You may remember this from last time. The Septuagint was a translation made again just before the time of Jesus where the Old Testament was translated into Greek because many of the Jews outside of Israel couldn't read Hebrew anymore. So this translation was done and it, it very closely follows, again, the Masoretic text. Again, confirming that though we don't have a very old manuscript with the Masoretes, it's only about a thousand years old, all of these older manuscripts are confirming that they were doing a great job. We also have targums in Aramaic. Now these were interpretations that the rabbis would often pass on. Uh, sometimes they're called Pharisaic interpretations. Now we, we say Pharisees and we're like, ooh, bad guys, right? But the Pharisees were actually very stringent on their pursuit of God's word and truthfulness. And so while they got a lot of things wrong and that Jesus condemned them for, they were actually uh, very good in terms of passing on God's word. And they were doing so in Aramaic, which was largely a translation. Sometimes it gets to be more interpretive, but in many places, especially the first five books, it's almost a word-for-word -word translation from Hebrew into Aramaic. So in the Old Testament, largely what happens is we have a few manuscripts in different languages from different time periods, and we compare them, and by and large, they've been confirming what we have in the Masoretic text. That's the basis, the foundation of your Old Testament, three-quarters of your Bible. But most of the time, this is a good place to stop, scribes, how are we doing? Oh, have we passed on? There should be no passing yet. There should be no passing yet. Nope, I've got, I've got a timer here. You can't do anything until till the master of the passing tells you what to do. All right, I want to give this, this group just a little bit more time. Okay, we'll talk about New Testament text criticism. Again, we have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And with such a wide variety of good manuscripts, the main task here is to compare the best internal and external evidence for any given variant. Okay? There's a very important word there. See, when copyists would make an error, catch these words here, when copyists would make an error in their copying, it would lead to a variant in the manuscript tradition. So we looked at one earlier, right? There's one variant in Ephesians 6.1. Does it have enkurio or does it not? That's the variant. 
Now, somewhere, someone did something so that one manuscript either added that phrase or it was taken out of another. Somehow that error occurred to produce the variant such that there's two different readings. Okay? So that's how we're using those terms. All right, we need to finish up. So I need those first-generation manuscripts back. Okay, this is yours. Go ahead and grab a piece of paper there. You may start. You're copying. I know, it, I know it's a really important document. We're going to have to pass it on, okay? I need to take this one. Go ahead and pass your clipboard and everything down to the next copyist. Do your best. There's another piece of paper under there, okay? So go ahead and take that one off the top. There you go. All right. Go ahead and work on doing your best copying. You know, sometimes manuscripts, paper wears out. It doesn't last that long, so it didn't always get passed on. All right, let me start that timer again. Oh, and you know what? I need a couple more volunteers. Pastor Mike? And, uh, Mike, you've got to find somebody else, okay? I really don't like these people copying... I really don't like these people copying this Gospel of Marcus thing. It's causing way too many problems. So make sure that if they're copying the Gospel, if you catch someone copying the Gospel of Marcus over here, because I'm, I'm king over here, okay. if, if someone's copying it over here, you make sure that they have a hard time. Okay? Go for it. <laughs> don't, don't make it easy for them. Oh, no, I don't have any jurisdiction over there. But over here, they better not be copying the Gospel of Marcus. If they are, make sure that they're, they're getting it. Poke away. Absolutely. Poke away. All right. I just threw a number up here because we defined what a variant is. Poke away, please. If we take all those 5,800 manuscripts and we look at every single variant, there are over four hundred thousand variants in the Greek New Testament tradition. Okay, so I told you we're going to be way up front with this. Now, this is a number that gets thrown out there on the internet like a curveball, and basically the assumption is you should not believe the Bible. Okay, the number is thrown out there. It's assumed that once you get hit with this shocking statistic, therefore all of your faith in God's word is going to crumble and they just win the argument. They didn't bother to explain what that means or how that works. And, uh, hey, you know, I'm going to hold you guys accountable if this keeps going on. So make sure, make sure that this is not uh, an easy process. So what we're going to do is explain this statistic. I don't want anyone leaving here thinking, wow, 400,000 variants. I don't know what to do with that, okay? You should leave here with a confident approach to this, all right? What we're going to do first is read just a quote here from James White, who is uh, someone who studies and teaches on these things. Listen to this. You've got to follow. It's two slides, okay? You've got to follow this, though. If we, had, if we only had a single manuscript of the New Testament, how many variants would we have? Well, none, of course. The problem is that a single manuscript could have been changed, and how would we know? 
we would have nothing with which to compare it. While the idea of having no variance may sound great, variance actually are a natural byproduct of having lots and lots of handwritten manuscripts. And the more manuscripts you have, the better, as far as making sure what you have written today accurately reflects what was originally written. Let's go on. We must emphasize that 99% of the 400,000 variations are irrelevant to the proper translation and understanding of the Greek text. Irrelevant. The number of meaningful New Testament variants drops to a more realistic number of 4,000. This represents about 2.9% of the text, or one meaningful variant every three pages or so of the New Testament. You may say, wow, one every three pages, a meaningful variant. Okay, we're going to define that phrase for you as two. Uh, meaningful variant, keep that in the back of your minds. But here, I want to give one more thought, his conclusion here. The simple fact of the matter is that no textual variance in either the Old or New Testament in any way, shape, or form materially disrupt or destroy any essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Okay, let, let that sink in again, okay? We started with 400,000 variants. And then he said, well, there's only about 4,000 meaningful ones. And even when we consider those... There's no meaningful disruption to any doctrine of the Christian faith. So why are we talking about this? We're talking about this because really this topic is more about boosting our confidence in God's word than it is about refuting skeptics or having to worry about theological issues. Essentially, even some skeptical scholars will note, we pretty much know what the New Testament said. That's, you know, that's kind of even what Bart Ehrman says out there. Yeah, we pretty much know what, what it said. But they like, people like to throw these numbers out there to try to shake our faith. So again, I want us to understand a little bit better. So we're going to dig into here a little bit more about the process. And then we'll get into um, talking about these meaningful variants. I want you to look some of these meaningful variants, those 4,000 meaningful variants. Look them in the eye and stare them down tonight, okay? That is going to be our goal. How are we doing here? Not good. I, I, our timer is about up, so we need, we need to really finish up here, scribes. Okay, good. Take the copy that you received. Thank you, my trusty guards, for disrupting the service of those who would try to propagate this gospel of Marcus stuff. Thank you very much. All right, and I need the original that you were given. You may give blank paper. And your copy. And does she, she has a pen too. This is a scribal group over here. All right. Go ahead. Okay. This group over here, how are we doing? Did you pass yours on? This was the, the one you were given? Okay, good. Do your best. Oh, I forgot something. I forgot something. Guards, you were... You were really supposed to help with this. You know, sometimes the bugs get into the manuscripts and they eat holes in them, so you just got to do with what you got. All right, let's start this timer. Yes, Holly is a professional. 
All right. So we defined what an error was. Remember, an error was something the scribe did, which produced a variant. Let's go ahead and look at some of these different types of errors. There are both unintentional and intentional errors that scribes can commit. Scribes could commit errors of the eye, of the ear, the memory, of judgment, or of writing. These would all be different examples of unintentional errors. Let me give you a couple examples. I'll try to keep them in English here, right? Errors of the eye. So if you're writing along, maybe one of these scribes is copying along, and they get to a word that ends in I-N-G, and two words later, another word ended in I-N-G. They look down, they look over, write the word I-N-G, and they look back, they looked at the wrong I-N-G. And when they go to copy, they start where the second I-N-G was, and they skipped a couple words. Maybe kind of like in the Lord. You know, just a little phrase got skipped and left out. That would be an error of the eye. An error of the ear would be in some places, the text was being read out loud, and they were listening and copying down what they heard. You can see a lot of problems that would happen there, huh? Just a fly buzzing around, and all of a sudden you're completely lost. Okay, Errors of the ear, you can easily mishear or misspell a word, and uh, that those would become variants in the manuscript. Now, a lot of these would be checked. I don't want you to think this is just a willy-nilly process. People would listen, and then they'd go back and check them. But again, different kinds of errors can happen. Errors of memory. Somebody starts writing down, for God so loved the world, and then they just start going. But they didn't realize that actually they were writing down John 3.16, but in another part of the Bible it also quoted something similar to that, and it had a different phrase. And they just started writing from memory instead of copying carefully what was on the page. An error of judgment. Okay? Ooh. Is, that, is that an I or is that a T? Remember, we've got to work out their best handwriting. They've got to make their best choice. And sometimes those errors, you can't tell. It would be a different word. It would make sense in the context. So these would be unintentional errors that then produce variance in the text. How about intentional errors? And you're probably thinking, intentional errors? <laughs> Who are these guys that they think that they can go, just go and change the Bible? Well, don't read intentional in a bad way there, please. Think of it as um, they were trying to do their best, but they intentionally made a change. But they always were doing it with a good motive. Okay, spelling changes. They get a manuscript, and like, clearly this guy didn't know how to spell, so they're going to spell it correctly, maybe not recognizing they have a different spelling convention. Okay, changes based on the liturgy that many of these monks would chant every day, and they made a change in the actual text. How about harmonization? Going through the gospel account, you just finished copying Matthew, and now you're over in Mark. You get that same phrase that was over in Matthew. Hmm. Then you just go ahead and make them the same, okay, for, the, for, for good motives, and yet it's an intentional change. Historical updating sometimes occurred. Or sometimes someone was working with two manuscripts, and they're copying. What are they doing? They're basically doing text criticism. They were deciding, I think this reading is better than what this one has, so they copy that. But then the next sentence they would copy from this manuscript over here, and in the end they would create a completely new manuscript that was a combination of both of these that would be an intentional error but you can see they were trying to do a good thing do their vest or some kind of doctrinal clarification so these are the kind of errors that a scribe could commit that would then produce a variant in the manuscript so how do people today work with these manuscripts okay we're down to our last minute hope our scribes are doing their best here how do 
text critics, scholars today, work with all of this manuscript evidence and then help us produce the Bibles that we have so we can be confident we have what Paul wrote, what Isaiah wrote. Well, the first thing they do is look at external evidence. In other words, they weigh the manuscripts, they don't count them. They'll look at the age of the manuscript, older ones versus younger ones, meaning closer to our time. The location, where they were from, the genealogical relationships of them, and somehow, you can, somehow they can tell which ones were copied from which ones at times. Okay? So these sorts of factors are considered, and that's what I mean by this idea of weighing manuscripts, not putting it in a scale to see how many ounces it is. Okay? They're saying, which manuscripts are more reliable versus which ones, maybe they were mass-produced, they were mass-copied. All right. I need you to put your, put your pens, pencils down. I'll go ahead and take those last copies. Oh, but one thing I forgot. This group over here, we've got a few more minutes. You know what? There's a lot of peace and prosperity right now. Pastor Chad has a first-generation manuscript of the Gospel of Marcus. And he just so happens to be the guest speaker at First Baptist Church over here. So he brought his manuscript with, guess what they're going to do? They're probably going to compare theirs. So why don't you all take just a couple minutes and work with that. And we'll see what happens. What do we have here? Professional scribe. All right. Thank you. All right. You all may return to your seat. Thank you for participating. Should we give this group a hand over here? All right. Here is my copy. Don't want to lose that one. Okay, external evidence, weighing the manuscripts, which manuscripts, so again, Vaticanus earlier, that one that I pointed out to you that doesn't have that phrase in the Lord, is typically one that gets a lot of weight. It's typically viewed as a very good manuscript, Um, and so the fact that that one doesn't have that reading is something to consider. They also look at internal evidence, so looking at the context around it, looking at the author's style. Does he typically use that kind of vocabulary? Especially with Paul and some of these uh, writers where we know who wrote it, we can look at their other writings and compare them to help learn more about their style, and that may help inform our decision about which variant best represents the original reading. Here are some of the principles that they will go by. Typically, we prefer an older reading, a shorter reading, because oftentimes things get expanded more likely than getting reduced. The one that has the widest geographical support. If we have manuscripts from Egypt and over here from Europe, that's a good sign that, that this is probably the best reading. The more difficult reading. Typically, scribes would like to make things easier to understand. And so the more difficult reading is typically preferred. The reading that best explains the other one. This is a very important principle as well. So again, this is very condensed. It's much more involved than this, but I just wanted to, you to see some of the things that influence the decisions that go on in determining which variant is the original. All right. I promised you that we were going to actually look at some examples. I listed these for you on your handout. Right here, you have the handful of the longest variants in the Bible. This is it. Okay, this isn't all the variants Like I said, uh, it's not all the meaningful ones. We're going to look at some meaningful ones. But I want you to at least be aware that the long ending of Mark, those last verses in chapter 16, 
the story about the woman caught in adultery in John, and then a few of these other verses that are just only a verse long, these are the major ones. Now, I don't think that the entirety of the Christian faith is going to fall on a few of these verses like this. Okay? So there's, there's a lot of great resources I can point you to. If you're really interested in exploring some of these actual longer examples, I'd be happy to show you some resources. You can go and do the reading on yourself, but we don't have time to look at all of them tonight. But be aware that these are the few that are a verse or longer. Everything else in that is shorter than a verse. Actually, one on there I put is shorter than a verse. Okay? So now you're aware of those that are out there. You can go look them up on your own, and I'm happy to help with that. But I want you to look at a few examples with me. All right, group over here. Pastor Chad has to go back. His family really wants him back. So I'm going to need, need your final copy. Thank you. Sure you don't want to keep this? You might be preaching on Sunday. All right. Thank you very much. All right, and this group may go back to your seats. Thank you very much for your help. All right. So let's look at a couple of these examples, and then we'll see how our scribes did. All right. John 1.18. In the ESV, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. There are other readings out there, another reading that says, No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It's the difference of one word. Now again, I don't think we're going to give up the deity of Jesus if reading number two was correct. There's so many passages in the Bible that talk about the deity of Jesus. But you should be aware that this text, there is a variant. Is it the word theos or uios? Now if you know Greek, those are both four letters. They both ended with that os sound. You can even hear it, right? Theos and uios. So the last two letters are exactly the same. The first letter actually looks very similar. So you can see probably what kind of this could have been a, a handwriting issue. And so then one person's having to decide, well, does this say Theos or Huios? And they're having to make a decision there with a bad manuscript that they received, or maybe there was a smudge or a mark there. And so there was a problem. And at some point, one of these readings got in. So scholars have determined that the only God is more likely the original reading here. And yet, we can gladly both affirm, uh, affirm both of those readings. But um, scholars have come to determine that Reading number one is the original. Number two, Romans fourteen nineteen. So then let us pursue what makes for peace. Or reading number two, so then we pursue what makes for peace. This is the difference of a verb in Greek. Okay? Let us pursue and we pursue in Greek is the difference of one letter. And both of them are the same sound. O. But one is the long O and one is the short O. And in many places, they were not pronounced any differently. So, which was the, verb of, uh, the verbal mood there? It's the difference of one letter. But um, the, the scholars have determined that they think based on both the external and internal evidence that it should be let us pursue. Jude 5. Now I want to remind you that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt... Or reading number two, now I want to remind you that the Lord who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Now typically in the New Testament when we read the Lord, who's that talking about? Jesus, okay? So you could see where 
maybe an, honor, uh, an intentional change could have been put in here. It said Jesus originally, but honorifically they put in the Lord because they thought, this seems strange to talk about Jesus. So the harder reading here, which one's the harder reading? Probably Jesus saved a people out of Egypt would be the harder reading based on the principles we looked at, wouldn't it? Because we don't think of Jesus doing that work in the Old Testament, and yet that's what likely Jude wrote here. Now, again, I think you can see from these examples that nothing of Christianity is going to crumble, even if reading two was a correct reading. But I want you to know, these are three of those 4,000 meaningful variants, and these are three good ones, like ones that are they're pretty substantial. Okay? So when it talks about 4,000 meaningful variants, one every three pages in the Greek New Testament, this is what it's talking about. The difference of one letter changing something about the, the verbal mood. So hopefully you understand a little bit better about what is being talked about there. Let's look at a full example. I think that might be more helpful than just looking at these short ones. Okay? Here is a full example. Now, full disclaimer. I grew up reading the King James Bible. I'm thankful for the influence of the King James on the English language. And many people read it and are saved. So I'm not picking on the King James here, but I wanted to use two actual translations that are out there today. The King James was translated before we found thousands of the manuscripts that we now possess today. So I believe that if the King James translators were alive today, they would want to have the opportunity to work on their translation again, based on all the new evidence that is available but here's what it is in the King James in John 6:47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Or in the ESV we have today, again, the English is a little different, but focus on what the, different, the main difference is. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal believes on me. Or did he write believes? And not just what did John write, but what did Jesus actually say? that were given through John. Well, if we look at the internal evidence here, I want you to be aware of the fact, since we don't have time to read the whole passage, that John 6.35 and John 6.40 also have this same phrase, believes on me. Okay, so two times right before this, John has written, believes on me, believes on me. And then we get down here to verse 47. Think back to some of those errors. Remember that one about memory? The scribe has just written, believes on me, believes on me a couple times. It's very possible that he gets there and just writes, believes on me. Now, I, d I don't know exactly what the scribe did, but I'm just trying to think through some of the possibilities here. But it also seems strange that Jesus would say, whoever believes has eternal life. Believes what, Jesus? Just believes anything, anything they want to, believes in themselves? <laughs> no, that, that would be a problem. So there's some difficulty here if we read this verse by itself, but you can't read this verse by itself. It's in a paragraph. You have to read the whole paragraph of what Jesus is saying, and right before that, Jesus defined that it says, believes on me. So I think theologically, we're okay with either reading. Either reading, Jesus is speaking truth here. So let's look at some of the external evidence here. Four of the oldest manuscripts support the ESV reading. 
And you can see there in the conclusion, Papyrus 66 from AD 200, Papyrus 75 from the 3rd century, and Sinaiticus and Vaticanus from the 4th century, all point to this reading, whoever believes has eternal life. The oldest reading for the King James isn't from until the 5th century. Okay, and we just, we throw these dates around and we're like, that's 100 years later. Okay, and it's at least 300 years after the first reading that we have for the one that's in the ESV. Okay? And again, many of these manuscripts were not available to the King James translators. So again, I'm not picking on anything here. I'm just pointing out how this process is done. So we consider the oldest manuscripts. We consider that the shorter reading, it's more difficult in the ESV. And we might be able to explain how we got the one in the King James in other words, that he's already written believes in me, believes in me, and either intentionally he harmonizes it to say believes in me, or unintentionally from memory, he just continues writing believes in me and moves on through copying the rest of the passage. So this is the process. We did that in two minutes. But this is the process that scholars go through to help us determine what was originally written in the text. Now, as part of an example, I want you to be able to see what our copyists were able to do. Writing in their native tongue, now granted, this group was under a bit of duress, but at the same time, many Christians in the early centuries, if you remember from our history lecture, were under a lot of stress and duress. As they were copying, they were not professional scribes. They did not have the best circumstances for the first few hundred years. And so, there's one other problem that they had. This group over here received the Gospel of Marcus like this. This is called scripto continua. Okay? Many of the oldest Greek manuscripts are written like this in order to save space and to be as clear as possible, writing in only capital letters. That was much easier for people to do. They were untrained, and they had no space between the words. So you can see that there could be many problems here, especially with how to even divide words properly as you're going through the reading. Okay? The group over here, on the other hand, was given this. So we'll work with this for right now. Okay? And I notice I didn't get any scripto continua here. Everyone aut automatically went ahead and wrote it broken up. So let's see what we get here. Follow along with me. Let's notice what we, we see if there's any differences. In the beginning was the word. I notice a spelling error here. B-E-G-I-N-I-N-G. -E okay, so writing quickly. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was... God, and you can't see it, but right above it, it has the word good. So there's some discrepancy in the manuscript, so they wrote both words. So if I gave this to you, how would you know which one it was? Well, maybe only if you had another one to compare it with. Okay? The word was good, or God. The word said, let there be light. And there was, and then the word light is crossed off, and then we have the word light again. Light shone in darkness. And the darkness could not withstand it. We see this light, and it gives us the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of the, is crossed out here, and then we have Messiah, Jesus. We now see things, something scribbled and crossed out, in a mirror dimly lit. But soon we will see face to face the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness 
and then that is the end of our manuscript, okay? So obviously they were under some, some stress. We could see that they had a, a conflict with one of the words here. Let's see our other group over here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and then it's crossed out and says good, okay? So uh, again, think how that memory works. You've written a phrase, and you know what it says, and then you realize, oh, that's not what's written here. I've got to fix that. And the word said, let there be, and then the word light is written off to the side. So I wonder, did he just say, let there be, and someone's interpreting light? Or did it actually say, let there be light? You see, the next generation, when you give them this, they can't ask you, now, did you mean that word over here on the, on the side? Was that supposed to have like an arrow? Say, this word actually goes here. You can't ask that question. So sometimes we find new words in the manuscripts because they were actually just little notes that scribes wrote and then they got inserted into the text later on. So that is another way that we get changes or variants. Okay, said, let there be light and see knowledge of God in the face of Messiah. And then we have period, Jesus. We now see things in a mirror dimly. But we will see face to face the people who walk in darkness. We'll see. So we've lost our punctuation here. Okay, the group is just copying as best they can. We'll see a great light. Those who were in a land of deep darkness. Okay, so we've lost a, f a few phrases here. Okay, so, so there's obviously some choppiness here. So this manuscript could be valuable to us if we were to dig it up in a few hundred years, figuring out what the gospel of Mark said, but it's got a lot of variance in it. It's not as reliable, and yet it would still be helpful. It would add to our knowledge about what is available. So you can see how two groups, even writing with clipboards, with modern ballpoint pens in a well-lit room that's temperature controlled, can make mistakes, even simple ones like and the word was God, I mean good, because that's what it actually says, okay? So these mistakes happen, and they happened in history, and that's what we're trying to untangle even today. So let me end with a couple thoughts here, just as a reminder, in case some of this was confusing or over your head. Less than 3%, count it, less than 3% of the New Testament contains a meaningful variant. And you just stared down four of those variants tonight four of those 3%. None of these variants call into question any Christian doctrine. Any Christian doctrine. And actually, we're quite open with, if you take the time to look in your ESV footnotes, if that's what you read at home, most, oftentimes it will say, and some manuscripts say this. Maybe you've never noticed that before, but now you know why that's there. Those are only for the most significant ones where they've included that in the English, just to give full disclosure of what's available. But also remember this. We do not need text criticism to trust God's word. We can thank God for such a gift that provides another line of evidence for the reliability of this text that we so revere. We've received it through history. You've learned a little bit about how it came through history. And now you're learning about the transmission process, the copying process that went on. And as it's been copied, now we have this wealth of manuscripts to go back and look at the wealth of manuscripts that give us so many variants, and yet in those variants is the actual reading that was written by Isaiah, that was written by Paul, and we can be confident that it's there. So we should be thankful for the gift of these variants, that God providentially preserved for us his word through a process by which we confirm it. We didn't just get one copy and say, well, you've got to believe this or else. 
We can actually look at a number of copies to help confirm that this is actually what it says in history. All right. We don't have a lot of time here for translation, but I'll quickly go through this. Again, there are different translations. You can see it on the back of your page there. Everything from interlinear to formal equivalent, dynamic equivalent, paraphrase. This is what I'm talking about in English translations here. In English, interlinear would look something like this. You'd have the Greek text. You might have it transliterated into letters you can more easily read. And then you'd have options for how it could be translated. Okay? This isn't really a translation, is it? It's for somebody that knows Greek and wants to work with the English. Okay? So we're going to rule that out as a real uh, translation. But let's look at these three as possibilities quickly. Okay? I want you to understand your English Bibles. Here we have a formal equivalent. So if you're using the ESV, it fits this category. Okay? Do not work for the food that perishes. I'm going to have to turn around here a little bit. Excuse me for, for turning around, but I want to point some of these out things. Do not work for the food that perishes. You work not the food, the perishing kind. Okay? That's going to be as literal as I could be. Do you see how the English did that formally? There's not really any new words in there. You work not. Do not work. The food, the food, the perishing, that perishes. That's pretty straightforward. Here we have the word for but. Here we have the word for but. The food, the remaining unto eternal life. The food that endures to eternal life. That's pretty straightforward. Which the Son of Man to you will give. Okay? Which the Son of Man will give to you. Ah, they switched the order because that's better in English, right? Which the Son of Man will give to you. That's how we say it in English. And yet, pretty straightforward from the Greek. All right? So a formal equivalent is going to keep it as close as possible to the original. So these are great versions to use for studying because you get such a close proximity to the original text. Look with me here quick at a dynamic equivalent. All right? But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Okay, so this word but was added here because interpretively they think based on the previous verse that that makes better sense of this, even though there's no word for but here in the Greek. Don't be so concerned. Well, the word here is work. Uh, That's the, the most direct translation into English. But interpreting, they're saying the working is more of a concern. Don't be so concerned about these things. That's what this idea of working is getting at. About perishable things like food. The food, the perishing. So they're interpreting this whole phrase about perishable things like food to interpret the food, the perishing kind. Okay, so, so it's a very phrase for phrase taking that idea and saying, what is this idea and how would we say that idea in English? Okay, so but here, oh, but we don't have the word but actually in that translation, Okay. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give for you. Now, we don't have time to look at all of this, but what I'm going to say is this whole phrase right here, they took and made a whole sentence out of it. All right? So these these are nice for listening to an audio Bible. They might be nice for just reading if you want to go through large swaths of text. Uh, Things like the New Living Translation or even parts of the NIV fit this category. But what they're doing is they're taking whole ideas and then translating that whole idea into English. So again, just to understand where your English Bible comes from. 
And then we have a paraphrase, which I'm not even going to say is necessarily a translation, but you can look at it here. Don't waste your energy striving for perishable food that, like that. Okay? There's very few words that directly correspond. Okay? So it's really just saying, not just what is this phrase and how would I translate that phrase into English. It's what's the idea and how would I get the idea expressed in uh, English. So be aware of a par- if it's a paraphrase, it's something that's very different than a translation. You probably don't want to use those for study. They have this for learning about maybe the meaning that's there, but we want to be careful that we're not using that to study directly uh, word for word from the text because it's not going to be a reliable guide in that sense. But thank God that we have so many options available to us. These are not different Bibles. These are not different Bibles. They're different approaches to getting the Greek into the English language. But since we're talking about all the different versions that are available, I wanted to read for you briefly from the Oxy language from the Ani people in China. There's over 100,000 people that speak this language as the language that that best speaks to them. It's the language they dream in. And uh, I've got a passage marked here. I just wanted to read it for you as we get ready to close. But the problem is, I can't read that to you. See, the Oxy language is one of the over 1,600 languages in the world. They don't have any versions. They don't have a formal equivalent. They don't have a dynamic equivalent. They don't have a paraphrase. They don't have an interlinear. They don't have anything. So when you take your Bible off the shelf, I want it to be something that you're thankful for. Thankful that God has preserved it through history. Thankful that you have such a wealth of resources available to you to study what God's word says. And then to share that with others. But I also want you, when you take that book and you touch that leather cover, maybe you read it, to also pray for these people that still don't have it. You can see that out there in the world, look at, look at that number, 1,133, that they've only got some stories from the Bible. That's all they have. And I don't have the stat up there about the 1600 that don't have anything. They don't have any translators working with them. They don't have anything even started. And as far as we know, there's nobody even planning to go work with them yet. So give thanks for the wealth of the resources we have. Be confident in this book that God has given us. And at the same time, join me and many others in praying that God's word would get to all the languages of the world that still need to hear it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that though all flesh is like the grass and the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. And it's not just a word that it just drops down and we're just, we just have to believe it. We don't know where it came from. You superintended the process through history and through thousands and thousands of people copying it in different ways and different languages until it got to our language where we can read it today in so many different translations. Thank you for that gift, God. Help us to be good stewards of that gift in our own lives and the way we live that out on a daily basis. We pray for these languages yet that still have to receive your word, to hear it in a language that speaks best to them. Would you get the gospel to all the peoples of the earth as you have said you would? We remember from this morning that Jesus, you died for people from every tribe and tongue. And we long for that day when we can worship with them around your throne. We pray this in your name.